Blog Talk Radio. Bottom Line Show Live, and we are here in beautiful, sunny, brilliant Huntington Beach, California, and today we have a very exciting show at the Bottom Line Show Live. We have with us today Serena dyer Pasoni, who is going to share with us some very profound experiences that she's had and how to tap into the realm of the unseen with Serena. Thank you for joining us at the Bottom Line Show live today. Hi, I'm I'm happy to be here. Well, we are very excited to to have you on the show today, Serena. So let's talk a little bit about um, where you grew up and um, how many siblings are in your family, because we'd love to be able to relate from a familiar point of view. And then we'll dive in deep and you'll share with us the experience that uh, that caught my attention that you shared online about a situation with your sister, your child, and your dad. So where did you grow up? Sure. So I grew up in Boca Raton, Florida. That is uh, where we lived primarily every summer um, since before I was born. Uh, we went to Maui for a few months out of the year and um, a little bit in the wintertime as well. So I also consider that to be home, um, although I never went to school in Maui. Uh, but I'm one of eight kids, and we um, are six girls and two boys. Wow. A lot <laughs> of pantyhose and makeup and uh, probably competing for bathroom time too. <laughs> I, yeah, there is. Definitely more feminine energy in the house, that's for sure. My poor brothers, I joke all the time that, that you know, they better be the nicest husbands and, and fathers to their daughters. My one brother has a daughter. My other brother is not yet married. Um, but I always say they better be the most in tune with that feminine energy after being surrounded by it so much growing up. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And so where do you fall in the pecking order? Were you the firstborn? Are you the baby? Are you somewhere in the middle? I'm number six out of eight. I have um, five above me and then me, and then I have a younger brother, Sands, and a younger sister, Sage. Wow. Fantastic. <laughs> so, so what was it like, you know, growing up uh, with, you know, all those sisters? It's kind of, it seems to me that it would be kind of like a, a sorority house with, you know, five sisters and then two brothers around. It must have been like a party time all the time. Yeah, it, you know, it really was. I think to this day, I um, I prefer to be around women because I, I, I mean, I, I love my husband. So it's not that I don't have male friends or anything like that, but I'm definitely a girl's girl. And I think that growing up with so many sisters has impacted me in that way. I love spending time with my girlfriends. I love spending time with my sisters. And now I have two daughters. Um, and I mm. hope that one day I get to have two more daughters because I love 
being around females and I love the energy that comes with that. So um, it was definitely a, a really positive experience for me. I think I speak to probably three of my sisters at least three times a day, as well as my mom. So we're all really, really close now. And I love that. And I, um, I'm close with my brothers as well, uh, particularly my younger brother, because we're only two years apart. We went to school together and, and all of that. So I think that having so many sisters was, if not one of the, if not the best experience of my life, one of them by far. Wow. What a beautiful gift. What a beautiful gift. Yeah. And, and so, you know, with all those siblings, you know, you literally had, um, you know, there's eight of you. So there's seven other siblings that you have to compete for mom and dad's time. So did you ever feel like there wasn't enough mom or enough dad, you know, to go around no. or that you had to, you know, buy your way to do something extraordinary so mom or dad would realize that, hey, you're here, especially since you're, you know, out of the pecking order of, of six year out of eight of them, you're number six, and, you know, they're bigger right. than you. No. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying, but it was never my experience. I would be surprised if it were any of my siblings' experience as well. I think that, um, I think that they would all say that out of the eight of us, I probably had the least difficult time getting attention. I've just always been an attention hog. And uh, been really outgoing and I'm gregarious, so I, I'm probably the worst one to ask about that because I just always knew how to get attention. Um, but you know, I would say that some of my other siblings probably didn't want as much attention as I did, or perhaps my sister Sky did. We're both um, more on the outgoing, um, you know, especially as kids, outgoing, attention-seeking side. My sister Summer would have been more reserved. My brother Sam's quieter. But honestly, you know. I don't know if, if all large families would say this, but I think that most would because I have a, a couple of friends that come from very large families as well. And there's mm-hmm. this, this feeling or this thing that happens when you grow up with so many siblings and in such a big family. And it's, it, it becomes like um, fitting in with the pack, like, you know, running with the, the brothers and sisters becomes far more important to you as a child than getting your parents' attention. You know, not being mm-hmm. popular with my siblings, like messing up with them would have been mm-hmm. way worse than my mom or dad not giving me some level of attention because, you know, when there's so many of you, it's like if you're the reason that there's no dessert that night, oh. it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really bad, and, and you're going to be the one that feels it. So it's like you kind of just learn how to um, get along, and everybody kind of compliments each other in some way. They're there was really never mm-hmm. a feeling of like competing. Um, and, and I don't know if that's because we all had different things that we were good at or different things that we were interested in or what, but you know, even to this day, uh, at a very early age, I remember my dad saying something when he came home from a trip one time, he had bought something for my sister Sage at the airport. And I remember mm-hmm. one of us, probably me said something like, well, why didn't you get one for me? And he mm-hmm. said, well, I can either walk through the airport and see something that reminds me of one of you. And mm-hmm. one day it might be your turn that I see something that reminds me of you. Another time mm-hmm. it might be your brothers or your sisters. I can either mm-hmm. walk through the airport and see something that reminds me of you, or I can not bring home anything for anybody. But I'm not going to shop every time I'm on a trip for all eight of you. Yeah. It's the same thing, all equal. It's just not the way life works, and it's not the way this yeah. family works. And I remember kind of getting it, you know, getting the point at that time that, 
yeah. you know, he saw something that reminded him of Sage, and that was it. That's why she got something. And there were times that, that I got something, and there were times I didn't. And I just kind of learned to be totally happy for the other one when they got something mm-hmm. and I didn't. And I think that that lesson really carried on through our teenage years and, and even into our adulthood. I, I honestly don't think that there was a feeling past, you know, maybe that experience or being really little kids of thinking, well, why didn't I get one? You know, it became more mm-hmm. about, well, I'm happy for them. It was their time. You know, I can't wait for it to be yeah. my time again, but I'm happy it was theirs yeah. this time. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it sounds like there was this inherent um, spirit of collaboration and synergy that was fostered in your household, and so that you all learned to work and synergize with each other for the collective good of all so that you all were having a positive experience. Yeah, I think so. I think that it, it just, it was, there was never this um, feeling of like, you know, you know, some, some parents will do that. Like everybody's got to be yeah. treated fair. And on the one sibling's birthday, the other kids will get a present so that they don't feel bad. My parents just didn't yeah. do that. They didn't believe yeah, yeah. in that kind of thing, and they didn't, yeah. they didn't you know, ever put any, um, like, stock or credibility in that. It was very yeah. much like, you know, that's not the way life works. Yeah. It's not the way this household works. Exactly. Wow, that's, that, that, that's, that's really awesome. So let's well, – um, so when you got to high school, did you know – did you have a pretty good idea? Of, you know, you had siblings that were ahead of you that you saw them grow and, you know, graduate from high school and move on to college or whatever it is that they were doing. Did you have a pretty good sense of what it was that you wanted to do by the time you got to high school, or were you still in that seeking mode, figuring yourself out? I mean, I definitely knew what I didn't want to do. Um, you know, I, I remember in high school having feeling a lot of, why am I taking a math class that I'm never going to need for the rest of my life kind of – kind of thing. Um, I knew the areas I was interested in, but no, I did not know. I don't think I knew what I wanted to do, honestly, until sometime in the last five to seven years. I'm 31. So sometime in my mid-20s, I think I um, I got, a, I had an experience that really made me understand that in my mid-20s, I didn't have to have it have it all figured out, like what I wanted to do with my life. I just had to know how I wanted to feel in my life. And I made focusing on that the priority um, because I had been kind of having um, depression. I was in law school and I was going every day to a place that felt wrong to me. Like I didn't want to be there. I didn't like it. I didn't like what I was realizing lawyers do when I applied to law school, I thought it sounded like a good idea, but I quickly realized once I was there that it just wasn't for me, but I felt like I would be a failure or like a loser or something if I, if I left. Um, so I was sticking it out just because I was more concerned with how it would look than, than how I would, than how I was feeling. And I got to a point where I was getting sick all the time. I had pneumonia really bad. I had to go to the hospital. And I remember my dad said to me, maybe you're getting sick all of the time because you're always in a state of dis-ease or disease, that you're always in a state of agitation, that you, you're doing something for what? To prove to who? You know, like you, you can leave. Um, you're not going to get a medal just because you went to law school. If you know you don't want to be a lawyer, leave now. It was that kind of thing. And I, I still, I still felt like if I did, I would, you know, 
how would I, how would I look compared to my friends that were starting these good careers in New York city or that were, um, you know, climbing up the corporate ladder and companies that they wanted to work for. And I was now going to be a law school dropout. And I stuck it out a little bit longer until one day I just sent my parents a text message and I said, okay, I've had enough. I'm going to quit. And I thought that that would um, take away the, the the feelings of agitation, the the depression. I thought it would kind of solve all of that, and it definitely did not. I, I only felt worse. I felt like even more of a loser. I no longer had a purpose every day, and I didn't know what I was going to do with wow. my life. And I remember sitting in the audience at one of my dad's talks during that time, and he was saying to the audience, but he was looking at me, and he was saying, don't die with your music still in you. You want to get to the end of your life and say, I came here with something to play, and I played it. You don't want to get to the end of your life and say, I lived my whole life as a lie because I was concerned with what other people would think of me or how it would look or what what my parents would view me as or society or whatever. And and I remember talking to him after the lecture about how I felt like, you know, well-intentioned people would tell me, follow your passion, follow your passion. But I didn't even know what my passion was. And I remember him saying, that's okay, Serena. You don't have to know at 25 what your passion is in life. But you do have to know how you want to feel. Wow. And you have to go for things that make you feel the way you want to feel. And he said, how is it that you want to feel? And I said, I want to feel when I go to bed at night, I want to feel at peace. Just, just, I just want to feel good, just content. You know, like I just want to feel like what I did that day does, doesn't cause me shame or fear or anxiety. I just want to feel good. And he said, then you need to make a practice of first five minutes when you wake up in the morning and the last five minutes before you go to bed, assuming into your body how it, how it feels to feel that. And I said, well, dad, I can't, I don't know how it feels to feel peaceful because all I feel is anxiety. And he said, well, that's why you would assume it. Can you think of one time in your life when you felt peaceful? And I thought, well, sure, of course. I could think of lots of times in my life I felt peaceful. And he said, go there, go there in your imagination. And that's what I did. And the result was that at first I was just assuming the feeling, you know, every, every night and every morning I would just, you know, take five minutes and I would just assume the feeling, okay, this is what it would feel like to be peaceful and I would feel my chest relax and the anxiety melt away, but the anxiety would come back. But, you know, then I'd go back to focusing on, okay, how do I want to feel? And it got to a point where I was no longer having to assume the feeling. I was starting to just feel it when I would wake up in the morning and out of be that the practice, feeling, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. I could, I could actually feel it. I could see it. And I, I got to a point where I was living from that place. And what, what resulted from that practice, it was a really, really simple practice, was me coming to realize what it is that I did want to do. Um, and it came from just assuming feeling good and feeling peaceful. And I started in that time, I started just writing like blog posts. And I would share them on Facebook or Twitter, and I would get a pretty pretty good response. Like it, it impacted somebody what I wrote, or it helped somebody feel something that they were looking for. And 
that feedback that it was positively impacting people or that it was helping, that it was like serving in some way kind of gave me the motivation to continue. And then from there, my, my blog post got published like on, on, you know, some big things. And then I got a book deal out of it. And, and, you know, I realized, okay, I maybe want to follow in my father's footsteps in some way, but you know, had all of this depression and all of that not happened, I don't think I would have realized that for a long time. So, so what you're saying is really, really powerful and really, really, really key. And I'm going to say it again. It's really, really, really key because you started from a place where you knew that you, you needed to know how you wanted to feel. And I think this is something that's oftentimes not only overlooked, but it's dismissed because we think that we have to just, you know, whatever it is that you're, you know, whatever you're doing for a living or going to school for, you have to grin and bear it and push past through, you know, all these negative feelings and so forth. And, you know, those negative feelings that you were having, they were telling you something. And the fact that you didn't deny them, you didn't ignore them, and you didn't just, you know, you know, um, you know, white knuckle, white knuckle yourself right through it, you know, was a gift. You, you paid attention that you were having anxiety, that you were depressed, that you weren't feeling well, and you knew that you had to, that you, you had to embrace feeling better. Right. I did. I had to embrace feeling better and I had to ask myself, you know, what was it that I wanted to feel? And I wanted to feel good. And I think that, um, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Esther Hicks. Oh, yes. Okay. So I was listening to her yesterday uh, while I was listening to Abraham. And Mm -hmm. somebody asked them a question, asked Abraham the question about, um, you know, how they'll kind of do nose to the grindstone, Mm -hmm. like you said, white knuckle um, push forth for something in order to achieve or accomplish what it is that they're seeking. And Abraham said that you will not allow into your life what it is that you're seeking by nose to the grindstone type of energy. You allow what it is that you're seeking by aligning with it. And when we push against something, white knuckle it, nose to the grindstone, we're creating a counter force. We're not, we're not opening ourselves up to just allow. We're actually creating an energy that has an opposite, that has a pushback, that has a force against it. And um, I thought, you know, when I was listening to that yesterday, I thought, you know, that's really profound because I think so often in our society, especially, you know, in the West, we have that idea, like work really hard and, exactly. you know, sacrifice and give up a lot and you'll accomplish great things. But there are a lot of people that accomplish great things, but they don't feel good inside. They don't feel like they're living their purpose. They don't feel um, what their natural state is. They're going against is, which, a lot of stuff. Which, yeah, exactly. And, and in order to get there, in order to get to that place of success, they had to go against a lot of stuff. So um, it was that kind of that realization that I want to just align with it by just allowing what it is that I want to feel flow into my life. And if I can do that by becoming a vibrational match to it, which is what we're doing when we're assuming the feeling, we're becoming what it is that we're seeking. And my dad mm-hmm. used to say that to me all the time. You don't get what you want in life. You get what you are. And if you want something, become a vibrational match to it. And, and part of the way you can do that is by, by assuming or using your imagination or your thoughts to focus your attention on that, on 
rather than saying, you know, I want this loving relationship and I want this perfect guy and I want this or this perfect woman, mm-hmm. it's like becoming a being of love in yourself and offering that to everybody that you meet, offering love, offering acceptance, offering friendship, offering kindness or compassion. And in doing that, you become a vibrational match to what you're seeking. And the perfect person, the perfect partner just shows up. It's just the way the universe works. I mean, Einstein proved it. This isn't just hocus pocus talk. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's one of the beauties about the time that we're living in right now because we do have what the mystics have known for four, five, six thousand years. Um, the scientists are now starting to prove scientifically that, you know, what the effect of vibration is and they can actually quantify it and they can actually prove these things that, you know, prayer and meditation and that thoughts are actually ta- tangible things even though we can't see them, you know, from our perspective. Um, so we're living in a, in a fascinating time where basically science and spirituality are kind of becoming one. One's basically confirming the other and saying, yeah, yeah, you know, they're they're right on target. Um, I love yeah. what you're saying also about assuming how it feels because you and your dad during your, your, your conversation and exchange, you talk about assuming the feeling and being the feeling in the midst of this terrible depression and anxiety which is not an easy thing to do but you did it I mean you're living proof that it can be done because you did it yeah and I still I'm a work in progress so I still actually have to do it all the time I have to when I find myself in a state of anxiety which I've had a lot of um, in the last two years I have had to you know take the time and it's not easy because I have two children under two, but I have yeah. to take the time to get myself to a place. For me, the, the biggest thing that helps me get out of anxiety is appreciation. So a lot of times when I start to feel anxiety, I have to remove myself from from the anxious state that I'm in by expressing gratitude and appreciation for what it is that I have. And I've had a very difficult two years, these last two years, have been, you know, um, if, if, if I had smooth sailing up until I was, uh, you know, all, uh, May of 2015, I had smooth sailing, or maybe March of 2015, actually. Um, mm-hmm. It's like everything bad that could have happened happened in a really condensed short period of time. And um, I've had to sort of come to grips with all of that while also losing my father. And he's always been the person that I would go to for the advice, for the guidance. So I've had to kind of learn to find it on my own, um, which has not been the easiest thing. And I, I know that when I start to get in that mindset or I start to go down that path of, of anxiety and fear and stress and worry and sadness and grief and all those sort of lower emotions, um, the thing that can help me turn it around fast is to take the time to express gratitude or appreciation for what it is that I have and also for the obstacles that have shown up and to just say, I know that you are here to teach me something. I'm open to receiving the lesson so that you can go away basically so that this suffering can go away, but I'm open to receiving the lesson and to learning and growing from this experience. So even in the negative experience to say, thank you for that experience alone. Mm-hmm. Well, and see, that, that's, I think, the, the, one of the key things. We all look at, at people, and whether they're public speakers, whether they're celebrities, 
you know, TV, radio show hosts, athletic figures, anybody who's in the limelight whatsoever, even in a community setting, whether it's a, you know, politician or teacher or whatnot. And we oftentimes think that, you know, it's like, okay, they're this shiny little object, they're perfectly dressed and hair, not a hair out of place and so forth. And in that moment, they look so happy and cheery, we, we never realize that it could be that before they got there that day or just the day before, they may have been struggling with either anxiety, depression, or grief, or sorrow, or anger, or loss, because we're seeing them, you know, in a public setting now, and we think that they're, you know, they're always like that. And you hit the nail on the head where you said, you know, you're basically a work in progress, but we all are. We're all a work in progress. And this is not something that you just did that one time. This is a tool. This is a strategy. This is a way of living that you've incorporated because you you see that as you have a negative emotion, whatever emotion that doesn't feel good in the moment, you can go to this place where you're assuming the feeling that you want instead of the one that you're experiencing in that moment. You can flip the switch and gradually get yourself out of that not feeling good place and bring yourself to be the feeling that you do want to have and embrace that. And like you said so beautifully, your dad told you, if you're like, well, but I don't know how to do that. Well, great. Just use your imagination and use your thoughts. And go to remember when you had an instance where you did feel good and you were feeling joy or ecstasy or, or whatever that positive you know, emotion was. And just revisit that in your imagination because when you revisit it, it's as if it's happening to you right now. Right, exactly. Yeah, because your subconscious mind can't tell the difference between what it's thinking versus what it's experiencing. At least that's what my dad always told me, that your subconscious mind is just is just told what you're feeling. So assume the feeling. You know, go into the uh, the memory. If the memory makes you feel good, I mean, align more with the, the positive feeling or the one that makes you feel good because that's how you become a vibrational match to it, by becoming what it is that you're seeking. And it definitely worked for me, and I know it probably sounds like, this really easy sort of airy-fairy practice. But mm-hmm. I got to tell you, I mean, you're going to have thoughts regardless. So why not put them on something that, even if you don't believe it, that, you know, potentially can bring you closer to what it is that you want. Even if you don't, even if you're not convinced, I mean, to take the risk because you're going to have the thoughts regardless. Why not put them on, on the thing that, that makes you feel good or that reminds you of something that, you know, just elevates you, the energy that you're, you're, sitting in or living in at that time I just think that it's really important that how we feel be a primary focus for us because as as you know as we said previously how you feel is a vibrational match for what it is that you attract into your life and who wants to attract more anxiety when they're wanting to leave their anxious state you know it's like you want to feel good you got to go to a place where you feel good. That's how you got to get out of there. That's the way to do it. <laughs> Sounds so simple, but it's you know it takes work. Yeah, it's simple. It's not easy. It's simple because the actual what you need to do, it's not complicated. Um, now, is it easy? Not necessarily, because when you're feeling crummy, that's the hardest thing to do. And ironically, when you're feeling crummy, when you're feeling depressed, or when you're feeling angry, or when you're feeling grief, or any of those negative emotions. What you're doing is you're assuming that feeling and kind of mulling over by default whatever that negative thought that's perpetuating that ugly feeling. And it's just a matter of saying, oh, wait a minute, I don't want to keep going on that scratch record. 
let me go to the scratch record that is, you know, having me think and assume the feeling of a better outcome, of a positive emotion that I want, like joy or laughter. Um, yeah, exactly. I think that it's, 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 like you said, it sounds simple. It is simple, but it takes practice mm-hmm. and it takes effort and it takes it work. And, and um, you know, I think also, though, you know, even more than that, I think that a lot of times we just get stuck in feeling bad and feeling bad almost becomes addicting in a way, you know, like feeling, feeling angry. We, we hold on so, so many times we hold on to our anger or our fear as if it's serving us in some way. You know, it's like I have mm-hmm. friends that will talk about how they don't want to not worry. They think that worrying is serving them in some way. Maybe it's making them cautious or, or allowing them to think things through. And I think, you know, worry is just taking you out of the present moment and putting you into a, a place that may or may not ever even happen. What a waste of time, you know? And it's like what so many of us get hooked on our feelings of anger or stress or sadness or worry. And I definitely have done that, particularly um, feelings of fear for me is something that I will sort of identify with sometimes and hold on to. And then I have to remind myself I'm in this, I'm in this place of fear because I thought myself here and I need to get out of it by, by doing the same thing, thinking my way out of it, feeling my way out of it, you know, becoming, becoming less aligned with fear and more aligned with love because I know that A Course in Miracles says everything that is fear is not love and everything that is love is not fear. Those are the only two emotions in the whole world. Everything that is not love derives from fear and everything that is not fear derives from love and I think the more that I understand that, the more I realize that me holding on to certain fears is only keeping me from experiencing more love. And who would want that? I mean, who would want fear over love? Yeah, it sounds crazy. But yet some of us, by default, out of ignorance, you know, not knowing any better, you know, we do that until we are brought to the awareness that, oh, wait a minute, you have a choice and you can choose to, you know, no one can really save you. You really can save yourself out of that you know, that paradigm, that, that scratch record that you're on, and you can get yourself out of it. And it's simple. Right. You just have to choose to do it. And I know that Esther Hicks talks about, you know, it's hard to go from feeling really angry or feeling really anxious or depressed to being ecstatic with joy. But you can go from feeling, let's say, anxious to feeling maybe depressed to feeling neutral to feeling good to feeling joyful to feeling, you know, laughing and ecstatic. And you can gradually swing yourself to the other side of the spectrum so that you're no longer in the bottom side of the spectrum. Right. Yeah, I remember, um, uh, so my dad had this thing that he liked to do while he was alive, which was to say to my siblings and I as we got older, um, if you want any gifts from me for Christmas, which would be, you know, he would write a check, he would give us, you know, some money for Christmas because he wasn't going to, you know, shop for shoes or purses or clothes or something like that for us as we got older, that's for sure. So um, he would say, if you want some money for me for Christmas, you're going to have to do an assignment. And we would say, okay, what's the assignment? You know, it's the same thing every year. And the assignment was always to read a book or listen to a tape, and he would select what it was. And it was his way of trying to, (laughs) I think, expose us to what it was that he was really interested in at that time. And um, mm-hmm. the most recent one that he did before he died was he had done a, a recording uh, with Esther Hicks channeling Abraham oh. live. And I think it was California. And he wanted all of us to listen to it, to watch it. it was, it's actually a DVD. 
So he sent oh, wow. each one of us a DVD and said, um, you know, you need to read, uh, sorry, you need to watch this. And then you need to write something back to me, letting me know what part did you the most. And so I sat I down that. with my husband and we watched the DVD together. And I then wrote out what impacted me the most. And I think looking back on it, you know, there were a lot of signs that indicated to my siblings and my mom and myself that our dad somehow on a really deep soul level knew he was getting ready to transition, to die, mm-hmm. to leave the physical for the non-physical. Um, and my sister Sage and I are working on a book right now of sort of about a, a lot of these different things. But one of the things that st- stuck out to me was after he died, I thought, you know, now I get why he had us watch that DVD mm. with Esther Hicks, because there's a part in there where Esther, where Abraham, sorry, Abraham is talking about when Esther lost Jerry, when Jerry died and, yes. and how Esther could not, you know, Esther is a channelist. That's what she does. And she was unable to find Jerry, to feel Jerry, to, um, to reach Jerry and she didn't understand why that was because she is somebody that can channel beings that have that have died and Abraham was explaining that Esther was really upset and was really frustrated and was full of grief and and was it was becoming even worse because she was not able to find Jerry to channel him or to, to talk to him or whatever after he died and and that prior to that they had always agreed that they would reach out to the other from the other side whoever were to die first and Esther had the realization at some point that in order to find Jerry, she had to become like what Jerry was experiencing now that he was in the non-physical. And that all of these years of, exactly. And she had to align with bliss, joy, love, laughter. She had to go to that place instead of the grief and the fear and the sadness. And when she had that realization, boom, she did it. She started laughing and said to him out loud, I cannot believe I forgot that I would need to find you like this. And she had this like <laughs> feeling of euphoria that she couldn't believe that this, that, that her whole life had escaped her because she was so stuck in the grief. And when that happened, a couple of books fell off the shelf and the whole curtain thing waved. And there was like this crazy thing that happened in her home, almost like he was saying, I'm here, you've got it. And anyway, then she was able to feel him and to hear him and to experience him. And that part of the DVD, when my dad was still alive, that's what I wrote to him about. I said that impacted me the most because once again, it was the realization that anytime we want any kind of divine guidance or loved ones or communication, or even just to attract something positive into our life, we have to become like what it is that we're seeking. And low vibrational energy like fear or sadness or grief, they cannot, they do not allow in, they do not match up with high vibrational energy like joy and bliss and laughter. And that we have to elevate ourselves if that's what we're seeking. Anyway, after my dad died, the day I got the call that um, his assistant could not D his assistant was D and she's a good friend of mine. She called me saying that she wasn't able to get into his hotel room. Um, and that, that the door had a, a, a deadbolt across it, which was very unusual in my entire life of knowing my daddy's never once deadbolted anything. So it was really odd, really bizarre. 
in the door. They had to get security to break in the door. And I was on the phone with her when she got in the hotel room and found him um, and he had died. And uh, so there was this enormous shock because I kept saying, you know, do CPR, do CPR. And I didn't understand because I was in Florida, he was in Hawaii and I didn't Mm -hmm. understand why nobody was telling me that he was okay. And I was really in a state of shock. And I was also with my family at that time. So I then had to put the phone on speaker so that my mom and my siblings and my nieces and nephews and everybody could hear what was happening on the other end of the phone, which was traumatic. And I remember we were all at my mom's house when this happened. And I remember leaving my mom's house and I hadn't cried and I hadn't even expressed any grief um, while at her house and everybody else had all my nieces and nephews and everybody was upset and crying. And I, I wasn't, I think I was just in shock. As soon as we got in the car, my husband and I, and my baby at the time, sailor, who's almost two now. Uh, but as soon as we got in the car, I just lost it. We got home that night, um, from my mom's house, I got in bed and the grief was like, uh, just like an elephant sitting on my chest. And I remember feeling like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. How am I going to continue on? And I said, okay, dad, I will make a commitment right now not to get stuck in grief. I will commit to that right now if you can give me a sign. And I thought this thought popped into my head. I can't explain it, but it said, uh, listen to your dad's podcast, which I had never done, not one time in my life before. I didn't even know that there was an app on my iPhone called podcast. I guess it just comes with, with all the iPhones now. So mm-hmm. it was like being an automatic pilot, you know, what, what is that autopilot mode? I went to the yeah. app. I, I found it. I found the app. I opened it and I typed in Wayne Dyer and I pushed play on the first podcast that came up. And the podcast was a young man calling because his mother was dying from cancer. And my dad talked to this young man all about, um, you know, how beautiful death would be and how freeing it would be for her and how he needs to make a commitment not to get stuck in grief once that happens. And it was really like a beautiful message for me to receive in that moment. And I I started to feel very calm and I, I completely relaxed and I thought, okay, that's great. I didn't feel like it's quite the sign that I wanted. The last five seconds of the podcast, I swear to God, it, my dad said, and now for all of the listeners, if you could take a moment and send love to my daughter, Serena. She's going through oh a hard God. time right now. Yep. And the podcast ended. And I, oh, the tears, the waterworks, I started sobbing and I feel like I could cry right now. I started <laughs> laughing. I started cracking up and I thought, I can't believe you just gave me that sign. All right. All right. I got it. You're still here. I'm not going to get stuck in grief. And I made that commitment that same night that I found out. I mean, I found out that afternoon at like four or five o'clock Eastern time. And I, that was maybe 10 o'clock at night when that happened. So it was a few hours later. And of course there are times when I feel grief. And of course there are times when I feel loss and sadness and I just miss him in the in the physical way and I just wish he was here in the way that it was but I have to tell you that he without a doubt is here and I feel him and experience him when I do what Esther had to to teach me to do before he even died which was to align with the state that he is in and when I do that 
I can experience him in ways that are so profound. And I've had so many, um, you know, quote unquote signs and dreams and things that have shown up and so have my siblings and my mom and some of his friends. And we've had really crazy things that have happened. Um, and that's kind of what Sage and I are working on in our book. Um, and anyway, my, my point of that was that I felt like that was the lesson that I was given before he even died so that I would know how to find him once wow. he was gone. What, what an incredible story that, that um, really choked me up. I was able to gain my composure <laughs> as you spoke because it's so touching. And it's so, it's, it's, you know, I, I really believe that's what I call a God incidence. You know, um, those are the, the, the untold miracles that as we share them with others, we are able to give really hope to those who are hopeless and have them become hope-filled because they see the possibility because they're, they're witnessing and experiencing what you have just shared with us. And yeah, like and, is- and you know, I've had, I have to say, like, I've had a lifetime of preparation for this. My dad was somebody that talked all the time about how he looked forward to dying, about how he looked forward to sort of um, shedding this coat, is what he would say, this, mm-hmm. shedding this old tattered coat um, to go to the place from which all things originate and from which all things return. And so I had a person, you know, in my life who, who didn't express fear and sadness. And when somebody would die, somebody that he was friends with or was close to, of course I would see him cry or feel sad or something like that. But the overall message was one of just um, profound joy for them and what they are now experiencing. And, and, you know, he would regularly express the excitement for when that was his turn. And so I think that because of that, I was prepared in a way for for this um, because I've had friends that have said to me, you know, you get these signs all the time from your dad and I don't feel like I've ever had a sign from my mom or I don't feel like I've ever received a communication from my loved one that passed. And then we'll, we'll talk about it, you know, and I'll say, well, mm-hmm. when you think about your mom that passed away, I mean, what is it that you think? And usually the answer is, well, I just get really, really sad and I don't want to feel sad. So I just stop thinking about her. And then we'll, you know, we'll talk about that, about that idea that perhaps that doesn't allow her in then. It doesn't allow mm-hmm. her to, to come through or to get the sign or the message across. Perhaps it, it prevents that loved one from being able to reach them because they're in a state that doesn't, I don't know, align with it, if you will. And yeah. And so I think that my experience has, and my siblings' experience and my mom's experience has been um, really profound and eye-opening, but that's also because we've, we've, we've just always been – I don't know, raised on that idea that when you die, you're, mm-hmm. you're not, you're not dead. You know, we're a, a spiritual being as, as is so often famous said, having a, yeah, having a temporary human experience and the, the spiritual mm-hmm. being will continue. And um, because I was raised with that idea, that's been an easier concept for me to, to sort of live from. Mm-hmm. And knowing that his physical body, any physical, uh, any, pain or any discomfort that he had, you know, the things that are inherent to having a human body, all those things, he's free of that now. Now he's just com- completely soul, spirit, energy form, unfettered by the limitations of a body, 
he can be with all of you, with all your eight siblings and your mom and whatever friends who are willing to, to connect with him because he's in a state of bliss now as they remember and recall, you know, funny times that they shared with him, positive, you know, um, loving um, experiences that they've had with him. They're able to feel and see and connect with him more through, through that. I'm going to call it a portal. Because really when you choose to focus on that positive energy, you are in a different dimension. It's like a completely opposite dimension than that of, you know, anger, grief, et cetera. Yeah, I, I agree completely. That brings us to this incredible, uh, and I'm going to call it incredible, because I believe for me when I read read about this, I thought it was incredible how you were traveling. I don't remember from where to where you were traveling with your sister. And, um, you, you know, typical mom, you just have two hands and two feet, and you've got more kids, just one kid, you know, diaper bags, stroller, this, that, and whatnot. You're trying to juggle all the stuff that the baby needs, plus your purse and your own luggage. I don't know how you, how, how anybody does it, but we somehow manage. And you were struggling with that at the um, airport. So tell our listeners about the experience that you had and how that unfolded um, from beginning to end. Yeah, so uh, my sister Skye and I were flying to New York to see our sister Sage, um, and we were bringing my two children, Windsor and Sailor, and Windsor is eight months, and Sailor is uh, not yet two, a little under two, and this was my first time flying with both of them, and we called the airline in advance so that we could make sure we had seats together, um, because Sky was going to have one of my children on her lap, and I was going to have the other on mine, so that I only had to buy one ticket, and Sky would buy her ticket, so we could all sort of sit together, and because we were we were booking our seats together and, and doing all that, I packed one diaper bag. Uh, you know, I had the whole thing planned in advance, and I thought there, that it was going to be fine. So we get to the airport, and it's just one thing going wrong after the other. Basically, um, we got there an hour and a half in advance, and I had to wait in the bag drop line just to drop off my suitcase for 45 minutes. Then we, we get up to the counter. I'm dropping off my bag. They print our boarding passes. And she has been upgraded to first class, which we have no idea why that. I mean, in hindsight, I know why that happened. But at the time, we have no idea why that happened. And I'm in a random seat in coach, which is what I had originally booked. But she got upgraded for some reason. And w- therefore, we're not together. So we're trying to get our seats together. And yeah. they're not able to get us two seats together on the plane, anywhere on the plane. Um, so you know, the, the woman that was helping us said, you know, maybe whoever's sitting next to me and coach would be happy to take a first class seat. Um, so we're thinking, all right, we'll just offer that seat to whoever's next to me and, and switch. Cause who's going to turn down a first class seat. Um, then it's just a nightmare getting through security. They wouldn't take my, they wouldn't let my stroller go through security. They said it was too big. It's not, I double checked with the stroller company. It's not too big. It is uh, FAA approved and TSA approved. But this person that we encountered was just adamant that I was not getting through with that stroller. I had to go back to the bag check line, the line, because we were going to miss the flight. I just ran up to the lady that had just taken my suitcase. She checked the stroller. So then Sky and I are each holding one of my children with the diaper bag, with our purse, with our coats, you know, because we're flying to New York. It was February. And yeah. And it it was just like we barely got through security in time. 
to get to the flight. We get to the flight and we're like almost the last few people to board. I think there was a couple people behind us, but we were at the very end. And I go back to my coach seat and I'm getting ready to ask the person next to me if they want to go to first class. And they said no, because it was a husband and wife traveling together and they didn't want to separate, which I understand. So mm-hmm. Sky is in one row in first class with my daughter, Sailor. I'm in coach with my daughter Windsor and Sailor is hysterically crying I can hear her once we pull back from the gate I can hear her in coach crying for me um and you know now we're on an active runway my sister can't get up to come back and then the pilot announces that we're 16th for takeoff so we're going to sit for like an hour (laughs) on this active runway where nobody can get out of their seat so we're sitting there and sitting there and I'm just like so now my baby is crying on my lap my toddler, who's up in first class, wants her bottle, but of course, because she unfortunately still has a bottle, this is like my new my new goal to to kind of end this habit. But she's mm-hmm. still getting a bottle, and um, she wanted her bottle, and her bottle was in my diaper bag that I had because I only packed one because I thought we had these together, and on and on. So we're sitting there, and both kids are crying, and it's just I'm sweating, and I'm just I feel so bad for the couple next to me. It's just awful. I feel so bad for my sister. And all of first class, because they're listening to a toddler throw a tantrum, and this man comes up to me, and he walks down the aisle. You know, like I said, we're on an active runway, and he's not supposed to be doing that. And, well, let me just back up and say that while we were going through security, I didn't think we were going to make our flight because my bag, of course, gets stopped for extra search because it has milk in it. And and if you're flying with a baby, you can bring liquids through security, but they have to check every single bottle, every single one they have to open and sample. So, of course, mine gets checked, and that delays us like another 10 minutes. So I really didn't think we were going to make the flight. So while we're standing there waiting for them to check all the milk, I said in my head, Dad, please, please, let us get through, let us get on this flight. And if there's any way you can get us together, get our seats together on this flight, I will be so grateful. Thank you. I love you. And so I just said this in my head. Mm-hmm. So now fast forward and we're sitting on this active runway and this man comes up to me and he says, quick, quick, I'm sitting next to your sister in first class and I want you to take my seat. And they, you know, the, the flight attendant is like, sir, you need to sit down we're on an active runway. And I said, no, 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 I can't. I can't take your seat. No, no, it's fine. I'm not, I, I'm not comfortable taking your seat in first class. I'm fine back here. Don't worry about it. And he says, I'm a father of three. I know what it's like. I insist. Take my seat. I'm happy to sit here. I was like, are you sure? And the woman next to me is already pulling my diaper bag out from, from underneath the chair in front of me because she's, like, probably thinking, get this lady with her crying baby out of here. You know, oh she God. can't get me out of there fast enough. So I go up to the first class and I sit down next to my sister and both of the babies stop crying. I mean, they're happy that, you know, we're all together. And I was like, I feel so bad. That guy gave me his seat. I feel so bad, you know, taking his first class seat that he, I'm sure, paid for or upgraded mm-hmm. to or something. And she was like, I know he was insistent. And I told him you weren't going to accept it, but he insisted. So we're sitting there and, it, you know, and we, we end up taking off and everything's fine and we're in the air and he comes up to first class and he says, Hey, I just wanted to see how you guys were doing. Um, and I said to him, you know, thank you so much. You know, that really is just so kind of you to go and give me your first class seat and sit and coach. I, I feel bad. And I just want to say that this might sound weird to you, but I lost my dad a year ago and 
I said to him while I was standing in the security, I didn't know if I was going to make the flight or not. I, I said, please help us mm-hmm. make this flight. And if there's any way you can get us seats together, I would really appreciate that. And he said, wow, I'm really happy that you told me that. And he got all like sort of red looking and his eyes filled up with tears. And he said, wow, so I'm on my way to Hong Kong for my father's funeral. And I said, oh, my God. And he said, I think that your dad told my dad and my dad told me. And he said, and because you shared that with me, I think that my dad heard me as well. And that my dad was reaching out to me. And I said, I'm, I cannot believe that. I'm so touched by that. And he was like, you know, very emotional. And I was very emotional. And I just said, I'm, I'm just so touched by this whole experience. And I definitely think that they, that our dads, you know, are getting a little kick out of the fact that we just realized that they may, may have been in cahoots to make this happen. And, um, and it was just, you know, and I ended up giving him a hug and it was just like a really, touching beautiful experience for me and once again a reminder that um that well first of all you know as my dad just said all the time when he was alive ask and you shall receive um and and second of all that you know divine guidance or or uh i don't know assistance from the universe or signs or really cool experiences they're always there and available to us we just have to I don't know, ask, then align, then allow and receive. And it, it just, it felt like such a cool experience to me. And when I shared it on my Facebook page, it had a really, um, really big response. And, and there were a lot of people that responded with their own sort of synchronistic events that took place after they lost a loved one. And I thought it was just a really, really neat um, story to share and then get all the feedback from different well, people and yeah. what they had experienced as well. Yeah, and and you know it, it's in that moment in that you're in that hustle and bustle, and you're not knowing. You know, it's a little chaotic. You know, obviously you're getting into a plane, and you've got the baby crying, and your sister and you are being separated, and you've got all this going on, and so you you just took a moment, and in your mind, you just reached out to your dad, and you you said, Dad, you know, if you can help put us together, gosh, you know, for a second, you just let yourself feel good for a second, just saying, you know, you opened the possibility up, and it, you know, as brief as it was, you just put it out there and said, hey, Dad, if you can help with this, oh, my gosh, it would be so cool if you could pull this off. And then you continued on with what you were going. The point being that you don't have to take 30 minutes or an hour to ponder this feeling good thing. You just threw it out there and you let it go. You let it go. Right. And then what happened unfolded right before your eyes in a way that you could not have imagined because you didn't take the time to think out every little detail. You're just like, oh, if you could just somehow put us together and – Help me out with this. This would be so cool. And then you went back to what you were doing, and you just let it go. And then you were open to yeah, the Yeah, I did. I just let go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I received. That's and so and funny. you know what? The guy who gave me his seat, he received as well because it was such a, yes. a an impactful thing for him that I told him. I mean, what are the chances that I'm going to say, just so you know, my dad just died yes. a year ago. And, you know, I asked for his help, and he, he helped me through you. And for him to respond with, well, you're not going to believe this, but I'm on my way to Hong Kong. This is the first leg of a long journey. I mean, this is Miami to New York. And then he had a whole other journey of New York to Hong Kong. Um, and he was going for his father's funeral. And it, it just, it really touched him as well that he could somehow be of service in that way. Um, and and it, it made it made all of us feel good. And I think that that was... Yeah was his dad and my dad's doing was to just let us know, Hey, we're still here and we're still, we're still, you know, 
helping you to, to have happen what you need to have happen mm-hmm. and let you know that we're with you. Well, and, and let's look at this a little further because I think sometimes um, we gloss over these things and we don't, sometimes we don't allow even those things that we've asked for because let's face it, you know, a first class ticket is an expensive ticket. And so here he's making available his first class, class ticket to you. You're a complete stranger and he genuinely wants you to have it, you know, for reasons that haven't been disclosed to you yet. And so your first instinct was to say no. And then he insisted, and you you were able to allow it to come forth. And you were also vulnerable and transparent enough to share with him the fact that you had made that plea to your, your father who had just passed away. So you were vulnerable with him. And then he was able to reveal to you that, he, you know, his vulnerable experience of having just lost his father and so forth. So you, you both gave each other a gift on more than one level. You know, the, the, the actual mechanics of the seat in that is one, but the other one of w- what you were both experiencing and feeling on, in another realm, that is, that is even more priceless than a first-class first ticket and is showing you signs of how you can continue to move in this realm and tap into it more frequently wherever you go. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you completely. I think that that's exactly what it was. It, it seemed like a, a, the big gift was the seat, and it was. But even more than that was the the experience that it that the seat then gave to both of us, which was the sharing that we had both lost somebody and felt that they were helping, you know, make these things happen. And it was a deeply impactful experience for for my sister and and this man and myself. And I wish I had his name. Um, or I wish I would have asked him to take a picture with me, but mm-hmm. I, you know, if he, if he ever hears this, I'm sure he will know who he is, uh, because I don't think that this happens to very many people. No. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, and, you know, just put it out there that your father and his dad will, <laughs> will make it so that either he finds this show or he finds the Facebook posting and he can, you know, if it's supposed to be, it, it will, it'll happen too. you just put the request in and let it go and watch it happen. This is so awesome. And this is a way of living that that I know I can see and I can feel that this is part of, you know, part of your journey of not only doing it yourself for yourself and keeping it to yourself, but you're living it and doing it and sharing your experiences with others so that others can move a step closer and start to adopt. If they're not doing any aspect of this yet, today is the day. If, if they're listening to this show, if they, uh, if they catch this on any of the social media sites that we're on or blogs, you know, anybody who's listening or watching or reading uh, this particular show, it's not an accident. These are, I, I believe in my heart of hearts that this, these are divine appointments. You know, how uncanny that your father did that podcast. You mm. never listened to any of his podcasts. Mm. Isn't it uncanny? What perfect timing that you would pull up the app on your phone, that you would put the first podcast on, and that it would be the absolute perfect, you know, he's probably done hundreds if not thousands of podcasts, and you happen to get that one perfect podcast that literally specifically mentions you in the podcast. You know, you could see the hand of divine appointment and God all over that. You know, it's, it's, you can't right. argue it. Yeah, and that experience, that first experience of saying, please give me a sign, um, you know, it's 
the tone for what I Tarina? Hello? Yes, and I think we, yeah, we, 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 you faded out a little bit. And by the way, we have, I think, somebody who wants to ask a question here. Oh, sure. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to, I, I don't know why my phone faded out, but I'm happy to take a question. Yeah, let's see. You're live on the Bottom Line Show Live. Where are you calling from, and do you have a question for Serena? Um, I'm calling from Maryland, but I just called in to listen. I didn't know what, you know, I didn't hear any of the show. Oh, okay. Yeah, do you have any kind of a question for Serena? Um, it's okay if you don't. We'll just uh, we'll put you back on listening mode, okay? Okay, thanks. Thank you for listening. So, yes, we were uh, saying that the the that this is a continual process, and that these are all divine appointments, and it's uncanny. Now I'm curious because I want to go through the uh, iTunes store and check out the different podcasts that your dad had because I, I've been following your dad's teachings for years and years you know, myself. So um, I think it would be awesome to uh, listen to that particular podcast, especially in light of what you shared with us today. Yeah, I mean, it was on the the, it was the first one um, on the page on August 30th, 2015, but I don't, I don't know exactly, I don't know what the title was or anything like that. I literally just hit the first one that was there and, and that was it. Yeah. Um, but I, I probably will mention it in the book that my sister and I are working on. So I'll go back and actually find out the title of the show and when, when it was recorded and all of that and put that in the Mm -hmm. book so that I know um, for certain what it was called. So anybody that wants to sort of search for that one as well can find it. Yeah. That would be Mm -hmm. absolutely awesome. Well, Serena, I could talk to you for the the remainder of the day. I'm sure we could uncover all sorts of other wonderful gold nuggets. Um, And I think instead what we'll do is we'll ask you back, you know, to come on the show again and to share some other further insights and teachings and things that you know have worked for you. So it has been an absolute uh, divine appointment and pleasure for me to have you on our show. We thank you for opening up your heart and your soul and just sharing all of who you are. And I would encourage you to continue doing what you're doing. More importantly, being, just showing up being who you are is just such a gift to us. And you have such a beautiful um, legacy that your, um, you know, your father has left you with. And um, just thank you. I'm deeply grateful and in appreciation of you, who you are, and who you continue to be. Well, thank you. That's really beautiful, and I would love to come back at any time, and I thank you for giving me the chance to be on your show and to share all of that with you and your listeners, so thank you. You're welcome. Well, this is a wrap for the Bottom Line Show Live. We are Wednesdays at 11.11 a.m. Pacific Time. Thank you for joining us, and peace and love always.